Um, but we're going to jump into God's Word uh, today. So if you have a Bible, would you want to would you want turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 18 to 31. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31, and then Daniel will preach the Word of God for us today. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31. As I read, would you follow along with me? Verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26, for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. This is the word of God. Thanks, Paul. Good morning, everyone. It's always a great thing to see you all uh, again. And it's uh, even greater pleasure to open up God's Word with you and hear what He has to say to us on this Good Friday. Uh, Let me quickly pray for us, and then we'll begin. Lord God, we remember your promise that when your Word goes forth, it never returns empty. comes back with much fruitfulness. So we ask of this, Lord God, this morning... That as your word goes forth, may it multiply in fruit in every single one of us. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we feel not, stir up within us. What we have not, give to us. And what we are not, kindly make us. For your son's sake and his glory. Amen. Symbols are a very powerful thing. Nowadays, we might call it something else, call it what you will, marketing, branding, advertising. But symbols have existed for a very, very long time. Flags are symbols of countries. Uh, Logos are symbols of businesses, you know, the golden arch or the the swoosh. Um, We recognize it. And symbols work to typically represent the things that the people who are behind it are proud of. They want to represent it. The things that they want others to remember and be recognized by when they look at that logo. 
whether it's the flag of Australia, the Macca's logo, or the Christian cross, symbols are a powerful thing to communicate what the symbol stands for. But the Christian cross is quite unlike other symbols we see because it is a symbol which used to represent things that we don't want to stand behind. Um, Let me prove this point by showing you the earliest depiction of the Christian cross. It's kind of funny. I think some of our kids probably can draw better than that. But uh, in essence, that inscription in uh, Latin reads, Alexamenos worships his God. So it represents Jesus, as you can tell, with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross. Uh, It's a graffiti uh, carving that was found in the center of Rome, and it was made by non-Christians to mock this Alexamenos' faith in Jesus. So from that, you can take that the cross was at least originally not used as a symbol by the first Christians, but an insult by Roman pagans. It's because the cross to the Roman pagans represented foolishness. It signified Weakness, it symbolized death, a foolish, weak, dead God, a foolish, weak, and dead religion. So then, why is it that almost two, for 2,000 years, Christians have continued to identify with and stand behind the symbol of the cross? I think probably the most significant time in the year where Christians stand behind this cross symbol is on well, Good Friday and Easter. And so I think on this day, it's worth looking at why we do this. Is the cross a worthy symbol for us as Christians to stand behind? Is there a better symbol for Christians to adopt in light of you know, all the public relations challenges that Christians uh, in the immediate present face. Does Christianity need a marketing overhaul, a rebranding of our symbol, so to speak? And bear in mind that this isn't a challenge that's new for us today. The first generation of Christians, even earlier than the generation of Alexamenos, faced this problem. And it's a problem that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the passage that we just read, um, and he's instructing this church And I think these instructions are just as relevant to us as it was to them. So let's look at the first reason why the cross was typically used as an insult to Alexamenos in that graffiti carving. The cross represented foolishness. Now, the Apostle Paul recognizes this as well. He acknowledges it. He says in verse uh, 18, The word of the cross is folly. It's nonsense. It just doesn't make sense. Think about it. When Jesus was on this earth, he promised to save people. But what happened to him? He ended up being tried, convicted, and executed on this cross. Jesus said he was God. Gods are meant to be all-powerful, aren't they? But he ended up dying on the cross. So when people hear of this Jesus, to many people, the idea of calling this dead, guilty criminal who hung on a cross as God was just 
plain stupidity. But, Paul says, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says again, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Again, he says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Friends, God is in the business of taking and using what human beings think of as folly, as stupidity, as nonsense, and turning it into something that is so brilliant, so wise, that even the wisest and most eloquent and educated of us are made to look like fools. That's verse 20. See, when you read the Bible, all throughout, he does this. God can even take what human beings intend for evil and use it for good. That's in Genesis. God's ways are higher than our ways, and his thoughts are not like our thoughts. That's in the book of Isaiah. I think sometimes you and I can get so fixated on the thing that is right in front of us that we don't take in everything around us. I'll give you some examples. We spend money we don't have to buy something we don't need. We often speak in order to be heard rather than hearing others. As people, we lack perspective. We wish we had more. We wish we had wisdom. But then take God on the other hand. He does not lack perspective. He does not lack wisdom. He sees, knows, and understands all. While we are so inclined to be glued to the immediate thing in front of us, God, by nature, is present in every view, every space, and in every way. God's wisdom is so big, in fact, that even His foolishness is wiser than the wisdom of any one of us. That's in verse 25. Why do I say this? Well, back to the cross. The cross is the ultimate proof of this. Think about it. What humans saw as the unfortunate and untimely death of a holy man, God used to demonstrate divine justice and divine love. On the first Good Friday, Jesus hung on a cross. And what looked like complete foolishness to the world, God used to demonstrate His wisdom. For it is on that cross that God displays the fullest picture of everything that He has said He is. Think about wisdom for a moment. What is it? What is it but the virtue which guides us to be good, to do good, and hold to what is true even when things get a little bit complicated? I think that's what wisdom is in a nutshell. So here on the cross, God displays what? His perfect goodness by showing us justice against evil and love for the good at the same time. 
brothers and sisters, in a world where the good and the bad are so mixed in together, oftentimes that it's difficult to even decide whether we should turn left or to the right, God, in this moment, shows the greatest wisdom in showing the good and the bad at the same time on the cross. The author John Stott says it like this, the cross was the only way in which the love and justice of God could be reconciled. It shows the punishment that rebellion against God deserves. And yet, and how good it is, and yet instead of punishing us, God punishes his son. The cross is indeed foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God for those who believe. The cross represents foolishness, but at the same time, the cross represents wisdom. That is the first paradox of the cross. You see, for it is a historical truth. Not many historians, non-Christian or otherwise, would argue this, that there was a fellow named Jesus of Nazareth. He did some stuff, and he was condemned by the Roman authorities, and he was put on a cross as a symbol of shame to represent the foolishness of opposing the status quo. A fool, a donkey, killed on a Roman execution machine. This happened, but it is also a historical truth that Jesus, the Son of God, willingly went to the cross for those he loved. For you, for me, to take our place, bear our shame, to be the fool that we are, to show that God is just in punishing evil and at the same time to prove that God loves you and me. Again, to those who are perishing, yes, the cross is foolishness. But to those who are being saved, it is power. And speaking of power, let's talk about it. See, I think the second reason why Alexamenos is mocked in that poorly drawn graffiti of the donkey Jesus on a cross is how weak this supposed God looked on it. And again, the Apostle Paul says it like it is. The cross is, in a way, a symbol of weakness. He implies that the cross is something that is weak in the world. That's verse 27. That it represents what is low and despised in the world. It is, at its outset, a painful reminder that the leader of this so-called Jesus movement met a gruesome and untimely end on a torture stick. It was an incredible fall from grace that Jesus experienced. Think about it. Typically, when you see powerful leaders in the world, whenever they fall from grace, isn't it a symbol of weakness? When the CEO of a company is found guilty of embezzlement and forced to step down, doesn't that highlight the weakness of that company? I mean, its share prices certainly reflect that, right? Well, what about this? When a, a prominent religious leader's dirty laundry is revealed, doesn't that publicly discredit the supposed strength and legitimacy of that religious movement? So in this sense, it is a wonder at all that Christians even bring up the cross, much less use it 
as the greatest symbol of our movement. The cross, at least to the world at the time, demonstrated that this Jesus movement was incredibly weak. It couldn't stand up against the religious and political authorities at the time. It didn't put up any sort of fight. The leader just kind of died without lifting a finger. So the question is then, why do we then still, 2,000 years later, as followers of Jesus, stand behind the symbol of weakness? Because God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In other words, Jesus went to the cross to take what is commonly viewed as weakness, to take down the strongest enemy that this world has ever seen. And he brought him to nothing. He beat evil with humility. He took down the devil with sacrifice. He became weak in order to defeat your enemy, my enemy. To put it differently, God put on flesh and dwelt among us. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame and triumphed over them. That's John, Philippians, and Colossians all together saying the same thing. God demonstrated divine strength through worldly weakness. See, friends, in one sense, the cross is weakness. We acknowledge that. Not many people would argue that a person dying a humiliating death is not a display of weakness. But in a greater sense, the cross is strength. It's power. Not because in dying this humiliating death, Jesus takes away the power of the devil. He deals with sin and he wins. That's what happened on Good Friday. See, to Alexamenos' critics, the cross was a symbol of weakness. But to Alexamenos' faith family, to the Christian brother and sister, it is the greatest symbol of strength. For by it, Jesus beat the strongest and most powerful force in the world. And even today, he continues to win people over from his kingdom to Jesus's. That's what I call strength. This is the second paradox of the cross. And I think just briefly, it's worth us reflecting on our own perceptions of strength and power. How do you define power? How do you define strength? Is it financial freedom, worldly authority, success in our careers? I think we often equate strength with these sorts of things. And yet, remember, Jesus, the most powerful person to ever live, never pursued these things. In fact, he often warned us against these things. I think it's important to remember, friends, that power and strength 
is a paradox for us as Christians, just as it was a paradox on the cross for Jesus. See, Christians find true strength in worldly weakness, in worldly riches in need, and victory in humility. It's a paradox for us. Think about the Apostle Paul. He says here, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that, my, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then. The Christian virtue of strength is not to be better, bigger, or richer. The Christian virtue of strength is to serve, to love, to help, to give. All in all, to be like Jesus, to be a force for good in this world, my friends, to live for the, uh, for the lives of others, just as our Lord Jesus did. I think this is indeed a good reflection for us to have on a day like Good Friday, strength in weakness. So let's quickly finish up by looking at the final two verses of our passage, shall we? Verses 30 to 31. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, where are we? Paul began by talking about the cross being folly and, weak, uh, folly and weakness. And then he ends with talking about the one who hung on that cross, who became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption by doing so. Alexamenos was made fun of because he worshipped a person who claimed to be God. And this person ended up dead. Now, we know that that's not the end to the story, but we'll have to wait a couple more days to dive deeper into that. But what I do want to say today is this. His death, Jesus' death, was not the end, but the beginning of something remarkable. Paul says it here. It was the beginning of wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Let me explain these things with two words. Substitutionary atonement. Substitutionary atonement is what happened on the cross. So stick with me. On the cross, death turned into life. And I'm not just talking about his resurrection. I'm talking about what happened to you and me, those who trust in Jesus. On the cross, death turned into life. That is what substitutionary atonement is. It's, it's a big, big two words, but we need to get this in our heads. Substitutionary atonement. It is where a great exchange took place, a great swap, where Jesus uttered the words that we were supposed to. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were our words. And what did he do then? He gave us the words 
that were meant for his lips alone. My Father in heaven. On the cross, the Father turned his face away from the Son, and in turn, his face we now see clearly. Not as the judge who condemns us, but as our God who is for us. Our death, he died, his life, we live. Substitutionary atonement. During his ministry, Jesus promised that he had come to bring life to the full, and here on the cross, he brought it by giving up his own. This is, I believe, the greatest of the three paradoxes of the cross. It represents what lies at the very center, the very beating heart of our religion. Jesus died so that we might live. This is why Paul says, we boast in the Lord. We make a big deal about Jesus, in other words, especially the word of the cross, his death on the cross, life in death. This is what is offered to all and given to all who believe and trust in Jesus. This is the good news of the gospel. See, the cross, in one sense, is a symbol of death. Of course it was. It was an execution tool to punish guilty people. But in another sense, it is the greatest symbol of life. For on it, Jesus took our place, died when we should have, and so that we would have life and have it to the full. So for the believer, brother or sister, consider the life you now live. It's the life that Jesus gave you. The Apostle Paul says it like this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what Jesus meant when during his ministry, before he went on the cross, he said that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The life we live now is not our own. It is Jesus in me. On the cross, we switched places. Our old self was crucified and is now dead and buried. The life you live, the life I live, now it is Christ's. How you use it and how you live it, it is not for you. It is not for me. It is not for our sake. It is for Jesus. This is the life that God gives us in the death of Christ. We switched places with him. He died, we live. So live for him. That is substitutionary atonement. The word of the cross is indeed a paradox, isn't it? It is wisdom in foolishness, strength in weakness, life in death. This symbol of the cross is, I think, still the greatest symbol for our faith. 
And I believe we don't require any kind of rebranding. In fact, the earliest Christians like Alexamenos, who most likely encountered these you know, mocking graffitis as they went about their lives, saw this amazing paradox that is the cross. And ultimately, generations passed and Christians chose to make it, ironically almost, the most recognizable symbol of our faith. Yes, Christians, brothers and sisters, we can seem foolish at times. But in reality, in Jesus, we have divine wisdom. Christians, in many cases, seem weak to the world. But in reality, we are the strongest of them all. And of course, Christians will not die like the rest of the world. But we will live. We live for Jesus now. And when we rise again, we will live eternally for Jesus in the age to come. So friends, if you are a believer, wear this symbol proudly. It is a symbol worth standing behind. It represents the best of what God has done on this day, almost 2,000 years ago. I guess uh, I made the time limit. The cross. It was meant to horrify the world. It was meant for humiliation. It was meant to last for days. It was meant for slow asphyxiation. It was meant to prolong torture. It was the Roman soldier's job. It was meant to be used by Caesar, but instead, it was used by God. It was meant to stop a movement, but instead, it became the way. It was meant to act on fear, but instead, it awakened faith. It was meant to be vicious and violent, but instead, it became our peace. It was meant to uproot hope, but instead, it became the seed. It was meant to punish captives, but instead, it unleashed freedom. It was meant to build up Rome, but instead, it built God's kingdom. It was meant to discourage rebels. It was meant to stop insurrection. It was meant to put down Jesus, but instead it set up his resurrection. It was meant to jeer and mock him, but instead it was his glory. It was meant to erase a chapter, but instead it became the story. It was meant to hold up convicts, but instead it raised up a king. It was meant to shut our mouth, but instead it's why we sing. It was meant to be a judgment, but instead it became our mercy. It's why the song of heaven is the lamb. The lamb is worthy. It was meant to kill an enemy, crush dissenters and diversion, but instead it became the banner of God's love for every person. It was meant to be appalling, nailing hands and feet to wood. It was meant to be used for evil, 
but instead it was used for good. It was meant to be a symbol of God's assassination, but instead it became the symbol of Jesus' invitation. Come to the cross. Instead of sin and stain, you are meant to be made clean. Instead of being forgotten, you are meant to know you're seen. Instead of being ashamed, you can leave behind your guilt. Instead of feeling empty, you were meant to be fulfilled. Instead of being broken, you are meant to be made whole. Here, Calvary is calling. It beckons you. Behold, come to the cross. Instead of being an accident, you have a purpose and a plan. Instead of being abandoned, you were chosen by his hand. For all who've said, I can't, God has said, I can. No matter what you've done, the invitation stands. Come to the cross. Instead of being doubtful, you are meant to know your father. You are meant to be his son, and you are meant to be his daughter. You were cherished from the start. You were always in the picture. Instead of being a victim, you were meant to be a victor. The result of Jesus' blood, salvation has arrived. Instead of being dead, you are meant to be alive. The cross, it was meant to signal death, but instead, it's a sign of living. It was meant to be the end, but instead, it's our beginning. <laughs>